What if you were today days old when you discovered that you had access to the spiritual practices, ideas, and traditions that have guided the world's oldest living continuous culture through 60,000 years of rich and diverse existence and through 250 years of colonial oppression? What if you realized that some of those ideas and ways of relating to each other and to the world aren't exactly so different from what you probably already know, and that Aboriginal spirituality could be a profound source of contentment and well-being? Author, speaker, and War Am I Man, Dr. Paul Callahan is my podcast guest this week, and I can't wait for you to hear from him. Before we do, though, we have to play some ads. So if you hear some ads here, Thank you. You're helping us keep the lights on. Because, uh, you know, we have to pay people to make this show. There's a lot of people to make this show. If you don't hear any ads, hooray. We'll hear Paul say something cool. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. There's an altruistic reason of we should always share. The old people say knowledge, if not shared, there's no power. So we should share. But also from a spiritual perspective, this knowledge comes from the land and we're the custodians. That's what I've been taught. And so we have a responsibility. I talked about the importance of responsibility. We have a responsibility to share this knowledge with everybody that lives on this land. The reason being we want them to love the land like we do. I'm not saying they have to believe our spirituality. But we want them to understand where we're coming from, so at least there's some respect for that and hopefully some some desire to care for the land in whatever way that means to that person. So we're quite happy to share, and the idea is we want to sit around the fire together. That is Dr. Paul Callahan, author of the book The Dreaming Path. I'm Osha Ginsberg, and this is Better Than Yesterday.
G'day and welcome to Better Than Yesterday. Thank you so much for being here. This is a podcast that is here to make today better than yesterday. Since 2013, I've been having conversations with leading minds from around the world, from all walks of life, hoping to either get, I guess, some meat on the bones of your newsfeed or fill in the gaps from what we were taught in school. I'm here three times a week, Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays, and I've been here since 2013. I'm Osher Ginsberg. I'm a TV host. I'm a dad. I'm a stepdad. I'm an author. I'm a, what am I? Oh, I'm a a current patient of a pain psychologist, which is wild. I'll tell you about that on Friday. And uh, I'm really grateful to be here, and I'm grateful to be being listened to you by uh, being listened. I'm grateful to be being listened to by you today. (laughs) Far out, man. My head is so fucked. If you do want to get in touch with me, super easy. Send us your email at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook. There's a Facebook group. My personal one's just me. I I just need it to be there for the Facebook group. And I'm also on Instagram. That's where I am. If you want to get in touch with me, it's pretty easy. So look, before we started on today's show, I would like to just talk a little bit about uh, what happened on Q&A the other night. Um, If you're from out of the country, Q&A is a national debate show. It's a live panel show. I was on the panel with some absolutely brilliant minds, including Professor Megan Davis, who co-authored the Uluru Statement from the Heart. Stan Grant was hosting the show, a journalism legend here in this country, a complete mega mind. He's incredible at what he does. And Stan brought up the topic of Indigenous recognition in Australia's constitution and a voice to parliament. Now, I've never been so angry that I cried. Yet there I was on live television on the ABC on Thursday night, sitting next to a a beaming lighthouse of professionalism and dignity, Stan Grant, a proud and brilliant Wiradjuri man, as he posed that question to the panel. And something inside me just broke. And I've got to say, unfortunately, my words do get a bit jumbled. I know that we as a country have a legal structure in place that means we have to have a referendum in order to amend the constitution. But when I thought about being asked to vote on someone's right to be recognised as a human in the very country that they are tied to ancestrally, I, I, I just, I guess I just flashed to what that might be like for a person in that community who's already endured a lifetime of colonial oppression And and it just floored me. And look, I do realise that in my emotion, I didn't articulate clearly. And I'm really sorry that I didn't articulate this clearly because I know that the pride, the dignity and the powerful cultural practice and sense of community that has sustained, protected and guided our First Nations people through 60,000 years of existence and now 250 years of colonial oppression... I know that would sustain, protect, and guide that community through this process as well. I guess I was remembering the the hurt and dehumanisation I saw in the faces of those close to me in the LGBT community during the marriage equality debate, and particularly the young people I know in that community. And knowing what I know about how at risk some members of our Indigenous community are, it just in that it just felt cruel to do such a thing in that moment. And yet the fact is I didn't articulate very well that I know, I know for a fact that Australia's First Nations community are incredibly strong, incredibly resilient, and will be able to withstand whatever comes. And that there is indeed a profound agency and meaningful leadership from that community around the process. 
and that our First Nations leaders will choose to go ahead with the format and structure of that referendum process only if it's absolutely right. Because if it isn't, I know that community will not go ahead with it. And yet at the same time that I was, I guess, trying not to cry and scream as the rage and sadness combined inside me, I'm honestly, I'm truly sorry that I didn't, I didn't find those words. Life telly is a very strange place. It's weird. When I'm the anchor, it's rare that I'll get emotional. It does happen, but it's rare that I'll get emotional. However, when I when I'm a guest, it's, it's a very very different situation. I've never been overcome with emotion like that on television before, and um, I'd like to think that if ever happens again, I'll do my best to make sure I get my words out before my mouth stops working, which is exactly what happened the other night. If you haven't watched the episode and you're in Australia, you can watch it on iView, a Q&A. It was the one that aired on Thursday, the 14th of April. If you're from out of the country, there are probably ways to watch it. You probably already know that. <laughs> so let me tell you about my guest today. Dr. Paul Callahan is an Aboriginal man belonging to the land of the Waramai people. He's an author. He's a storyteller. He's a dancer. And he's a First Nations consultant. He lives just outside of Newcastle in uh, New South Wales in Australia. Paul's written many books, the latest of which is a book called The Dreaming Path, which really is, I guess it's a must-read guide for thriving in modern life. And it does so by drawing on 60,000 years of culture and wisdom. It is truly humbling to read this book and be trusted with some of the sacred knowledge of our First Nations people, to be able to learn such ancient wisdom that predates every religion on earth. It's an incredible honour and such a gift. I first heard of Paul's work through my mate Joe Williams, who has been quite public about his mental health journey and what road he took to get back towards wellness. Early on in our friendship, Joe told me about how an elder in his community told him, mate, you're not mentally sick, you're spiritually sick. And once Joe started reconnecting with the cultural practice of his community, his mental health began to improve. And one of the people that was with Joe along that journey is Dr. Paul Callahan. So to be able to speak to this man who alongside Uncle Paul Gordon have honestly helped countless people in Joe's situation. Well, it was it was pretty incredible. Now, just before we get started, during this conversation, we do discuss uh, suicide and suicidal ideation. If that brings anything up for you, please, in Australia, give Lifeline a call on 13 11 14. Or if you're outside of Australia, please call your doctor. The book is called The Dreaming Path. I can't recommend it highly enough. It's out right now. Get it wherever you get your books. Enjoy this wonderful time with Dr. Paul Callahan. Paul, I'm I'm grateful we can speak today, mate. I'm really, I'm really grateful that you can come on the show and we can speak about your book, uh, The Dreaming Path, which I've been grateful to read. And um, it's a uh, no word of a lie. It's a it's a true, true, true gift. One that I kind of part of me feels we don't deserve. Uh, <laughs> as the descendants of colonizers, a part of me thinks like, 
do we deserve to know this stuff? But it's it, we'll get to that. It's it's incredible and very incredibly generous, and I'm 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 really grateful to be able to get stuck into it with you. But Paul, um, to answer your question, you asked me what was it like to put the ochre on and engage in um, some ceremonial practice with um, uh, Joe Williams and and his uh, his mob down at, at the river uh, out in uh, where were we? Cowra, I think. Uh, it was you're down that way. It was astonishing, Paul. I, I have uh, been involved in ceremonial practice, and and I think you know I'd, I'd love to really get stuck into this. I have been to the epicenter of uh, the three monotheistic religions of our world. I have spent more than enough time in Jerusalem. I have uh, laid my hands on the Western yeah. Wall. I have stood in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. I have walked towards and. But I, because of the situation at the time, was not allowed entry to the Dome of the Rock. Uh, but I, I have not experienced such a profound sense of uh, inclusion, belonging, transformation as I did that day. Uh, because the thing that happened that day, uh, the, the part of this footage exists in the SBS documentary that um, I made. Uh, yes called yes, a matter of life and death and the thing that those other mono, that the monotheistic religions community and ceremony and practice and uh, I guess familial bonds and ritual around familial bonds and ritual into the beginning of life and you know the end of life are, are all a part of those monotheistic religions but they all generally tend to ignore the inexorable connection with the environment around us, the environment on which we absolutely rely upon to survive. They take for granted that the environment will always provide, that there will always be water, that there will always be air, there will always be food. Uh, yet what I experienced that day included those things and it was absolutely profound, Paul. It was truly, wow. truly profound. Wonderful. Now, when you put that ochre on, that's you connecting with the mother as well. So not only did you feel it spiritually, but when you put that ochre on, it's very sacred. It's a very sacred thing. And and that's you being connected and and being one. And I'm just really pleased that you felt that. And I guess one of the reasons I wrote this book is I really wanted to put my arms out and, and welcome people to have that same experience. And I don't know if Joe explained it, but the way our old people describe it is the, the earth is our mother. And they say if you think about a, a human mother, when the, the baby is yet to be born, that baby is inside the mother's belly and the baby doesn't have to worry about anything. The baby's nurtured, the baby's loved, the baby's cared for. And they say in the same way, if we care for the mother earth, if we love our mother, if we learn about our mother, if we listen to our mother, if we dance for our mother, if we sing for our mother, she will always give us what we need. And that's the way it was since the beginning for our people. They knew the heartbeat of the mother. They knew where she would provide the food. And they walked in harmony every minute of every day, mindfully giving thanks. And that's part of the experience you felt. And I guess part of that is think about what a different world we would have if we walked our footsteps with the mother, with love, where we felt that love all the time and knew that we were loved and that we didn't have to worry about anything because 
everything we need is around us if we're willing to listen and also share. The research shows that there are enough goods and resources throughout the world for everybody to live a life of well-being. We just don't have the capacity for some reason to enable that to happen. That, that truly is. And, you know, I guess I came, my path towards that came when I, it's been 25 years since I stopped eating kind of uh, meat. Uh, I stopped eating eggs yep. in 2002, but it was always for me, Paul, it wasn't, it came on to be a compassionate thing. But for me, it was like, why are we, this is food and water that we are using to feed livestock that we could feed hungry people with. There is more than enough. We are producing more than enough calories and more than enough clean water to feed everyone. No one should be hungry. This doesn't make sense to me. And this imbalance between, uh, and this almost this separation that um, I guess the laws and practices that have developed out of nations built on the tenets of the, particularly Christianity, where it seems, sees the person as separate from the, the rest of the world. Um, I think we're starting to really butt up against that, man. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, the creation story, and there are different creation stories throughout the country, but they all say similar things. And you would have read a part of it in the book. And in essence, the creation story says that the the mother and our father, Miami, from the sky fell in love and she became pregnant and she gave birth. And when she gave birth, she gave birth to everything. So the mosquitoes, the flies, the trees, the dolphins. So if everything comes from the one mother, we're all her children. And so not only is it important in terms of a metaphor, if nothing else, to see the earth as something that nurtures us and we need to love and care for, but also everything around us are our brothers and our sisters. And the old people tell us that we were born last and, and that was to remind us to never place ourselves above our brothers and sisters. They are our teachers and the old people say, if you want to learn, certainly sit in a circle around a fire and share with, with the people around us, Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal, and we will learn, but if you really want to learn, go and sit out in the bush. And I noticed with COVID, what was it that people missed? They missed going out into nature and they missed each other. They're the tenets that are important. I mean, they missed blue paper too. But the big things they missed was being with each other and out in nature and that's our old ways. There's a, I'm, as of this recording, Paul, I'm I'm four days away from being 12 years sober and I've learned a lot of interesting things in sobriety and one of them uh, because the the particular method that I have used to help me stay sober involves some steps. There's more than 11. There's less than 13. You can do the maths. Um, yep. But yep. Yep. I, 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 there's 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 God involved in that. And at first, I had a real hard time with yep. that. And um, yep. you know, it's it's very much a God of your understanding. But uh, someone pulled me aside one day because I was. Because of the way I was brought up and the you know the religion that was pushed upon yeah. me that I did not agree with when I was younger, I was quite resistant to this. And someone pulled me aside and said, "Mate, this is a spiritual program. It's not a religious program. Religion is for people who are afraid of hell. Spirituality is for people who've been there." And I was like, "Oh, so uh, let's let's kind of get a bit of your origin story here. How?" Did spirituality and this spiritual path come into your life? Was it something that you had when you were younger? Was it something that you connected to later on? Yeah. Well, I haven't been asked that one. That's a lovely thing to, to talk about. 
my my mother I'm, I'm fortunate I still have my mother and my father beautiful people my mother's Aboriginal my dad's not my mother's very connected to the church my father loves to go to church to support my mother but I wouldn't say he's a practicing Christian but he's he's very Christian in his acts he's very caring and he shares whereas my mother really does follow the the texts so I grew up with my mother sharing things but also when I grew up they bought a lot of the different magazines that were circulated at the time and still are and as an eight nine ten year old I loved reading and I read them and they terrified me and they consumed me with guilt and every Sunday particularly I looked to the west and looked for the four horsemen to come and take me away and I didn't see it as something that was giving me freedom I saw it as something that was going to tear me away from those that I loved. So we have a we have a very similar up, experience, man. I was like, how oh, is this right. supposed to how is this supposed to be good? Oh. I'm ter- I'm terrified for things yeah. that my body seems to be doing by itself. I didn't ask for this stiffy, but yeah. I don't want to go to hell for it. Fuck. <laughs> no, no, that's right. The, the guilt, and and then when I hit the teenage, no, when I yeah. hit, when I hit my eighteens and my teens, I had big self esteem issues. Didn't admit it, but I did because. The social groups would call me a nigger and a dumb black coon, the, the white fellas that I tried to connect with, because when I hit about 16, I found that I had a love of learning and so there was some friction within my own mob where I got called Uptown and and um, Lamington and Coconut. And so I needed someone to kind of value me, so I turned to, to white friendship. And to fit in, I, I put up with all those racial slurs for a long time and I turned to alcohol as my escape. So I wasn't a binge drinker and I didn't drink every night, but I did binge drink. So Saturday nights after footy, I would just write myself off because I couldn't get girls to go out with me, even though I thought I was quite a nice person. And that that stayed with me until my breakdown in my mid-30s. So all that guilt consumed me. I tried to be the perfect person. And a lot of it was was to do with my guilt at not and not passing all the tests, and particularly with alcohol, where where I remember coming home one night and there was a group of fellowship people and they stared at me, and I felt it. And I said to mum later, and they didn't mean anything by it, but I said, what was that about? She said, we're all praying for your soul because you're going down the evil path. And even when I started to embrace my culture, and that was a beautiful thing, I had my breakdown in my mid-30s where I was suicidal and I nearly did it, but... Uh, a thought or, or an angel, whatever, I don't know what you would call it, but, but a random thought came to me as I was about to that said, you don't have to do this. You can you can prove the system wrong and actually heal yourself and, and help others. And so I thought, yeah, I'll do that. And a few years later, I got taken bush and started the cultural journey. And I was told, don't do that. That's the devil's work. You'll get cancer. You'll die by some Aboriginal people and by other Aboriginal people I was told it was all lies, there are people just trying to steal from you, they're all making it up. But I went there because I was searching for meaning and in in between all of that I read a lot of different spiritual texts from throughout the world and I found they helped me. None of them gave me everything I wanted. But there was a universality in terms of some of the really good tips of how to live your life. And when I started going bush, I was given access to this amazing this amazing book of knowledge that had similarities to some of the other things I'd read but also some differences. And in hindsight, when I look back, when people say to me, because 
since the release of this book, I've had mostly really positive feedback, but occasionally people say, oh, same old, same old, and what's so different about your stuff? And it's very cynical. And in a way, when I thought about it, it is a bit the same because wisdom is wisdom and it's across the world because Indigenous peoples aren't just from Australia, they're from everywhere and they all had amazing wisdom. But the stuff that I've got in the book is from the oldest, world's oldest living culture of this land. And I know it works because it's changed my life, but it's not meant to sit separate to other wisdom. It's meant to sit beside it because I can sit with you, Osher Out Bush, and I don't have to be the font of wisdom. You can be too, and then we'll bring others. And they will be too, and guess what? We all learn together. We don't fight to say who's got the best story or the most knowledge. And that is something hopefully you've picked up, that Aboriginal people, we harvest learning and we harvest story. We don't judge and say mine's better than yours. We say, well, that's really good. Jesus sounds like a good fellow. And we need to follow those practices. But our spirituality is based on love. So the old people say we are conceived in love, we are born in love, we live in love and we go back to love. And so they tell us we don't have to prove ourselves. What we need to do is embrace the love and embrace the law, which is I must always care for my place and all things in my place. But the way I do that is different to you and different to others and we all come together in this beautiful mosaic to create this beautiful tapestry where we care for each other and the land and all things on the land in love. So it's not about proving ourselves, it's about finding ourselves and embracing ourselves. And listening to you today, it sounds like that was your journey because that was my journey. My journey of spirituality wasn't finding the light per se, it was feeling brave enough to let go of the old me, which was walking the footsteps of everybody else's expectations and finding me and then believing in me and now I walk my footsteps with respect for other people. At the same time, I trust that my path is a path that I'm following and others can walk beside me on their paths and we join together in unity. And people might say, oh, that's a bit cheesy, that's a bit new agey, but wisdom is wisdom and unity and walking together and sharing for me works. Can I ask, you mentioned it before about trying to um, you know, pass the tests or meet others' expectations. The acquisition of stuff as a um, measure of success has been colossal since, you know, I guess mass production, the industrial revolution, like oh, because I drive this car, therefore I am this person or because I wear this particular brand of shoes, therefore I am this person. And anyone who has felt that rush of buying that thing with one click that shows up on their Instagram feed and then when the thing arrives, they're like, fuck yeah, is this bag or these sunglasses and whatever. And then the second sunny day you wear them and go, where's my sunglasses? Oh, well, we'll just wear these ones. Like it doesn't matter. It's now just a bit of metal and plastic that's going to be landfill in a couple of years from now. Did you find yourself um, like hungry, hungry hippos just trying to get all the stuff, hoping that if I get all the stuff, if I have all the things, it will be better? Yeah, yeah, for sure. And again, hindsight is a wonderful thing. I didn't know it when I was in it. And, and it's not just materiality. It's also power and prestige. So, And so consumerism is a big thing. And funnily enough, I have an accounting degree and I used to lecture in economics. But it was useful to learn the machine so that I could discover what truth is in terms of my observation of the capitalist system. But it, it kind of goes back to when we're at school. When we're at school, and this is the difference again between the Aboriginal world and the Western world, 
when we're at school in the Western world, we're taught to battle each other. We're taught to, we're not told, we're not given swords, but we're battling to be the best in the class and the best in the, in the, on the oval. We're in little athletics and we're taught to win. And then you get into high school and you start getting pressure. You need to get the best UAI or however they measure the HSC now because you need to get to the best uni. So you compete at high school and then you go to uni and you're competing to try and get those good marks because you're told that I have to get a good job. And when you go for a job, what do they say? We must have competitive merit, so we're competing again. And then when we're in the workplace, we're competing each other. And then when we come out of the workplace, there's this new boss called the clock where we're fighting the clock all the time. We're fighting and fighting and fighting for time. And then we're going, when we're getting older, I've got to fight to care for everybody around me. But it's for all the wrong things, whereas the Aboriginal way, rather than fight, we unite. Rather than compete, we share. We sit down and say, hey, we, we've got all this here, let's share. And, and there's old stories, the, the Bogong Moth Festival down near the Snowy Mountains and, up, and with the bunya nuts or in my country, in well, my country, if a whale was beached, we'd invite everybody in to have a feed because we share. So the old saying is why the, whilst the, the, the Western world over the centuries built castles and, and built armies, we built relationships and the, the, the cornerstone of Aboriginal culture is, and, and the, the way we measure the strength of our story, and our story is really important, it's, success is measured by our relationships with each other and relationships with the land, whereas the Western world is all about competing to get money and jobs and also power. When I, I, I've had a very fortunate career after my breakdown when I was given the law and I decided I was going to start walking my own footsteps. I, I got a great job in TAFE. I didn't think I'd get a job because my panic attacks were so severe. Oh, no. But I just kind of faked it, and eventually I started to build my confidence. I started off as an Aboriginal manager, then I became the manager of equity, and then I became uh, an equivalent of a dean of business, and then I became a CEO of a TAFE for New England where I had 23,000 students. Unbelievable stuff. But it was all following my traditional practices. But there were people, once I became a big, big boss, saying to me, I need to be like you. And I'd say, no, you don't. Yes, I need to. It's important to me. And, and I saw how people feel that they need to, to, to feel valued by externalities. And I'd spent my life doing that until my breakdown. And when you're sitting with the old people, they have a laugh and they say, you know, these fellas building big houses with five toilets, how many bums have you got? You only got one. Why do you need five points? Why do you need three cars? And that's the, the peril of consumerism. We're taught to want. I mean, part of my studies in accounting was marketing, and I've worked in marketing positions, and it's about creating wants. And basically, when, when you see those ads, the ads say, you can't be happy unless you have mm. dot, 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 which then yeah. drives the machine of I need to earn money. And it takes us away from contentment. Contentment, I'm sure you feel it now, Osher, is when you put that ochre on and felt connection with something that was real, it wasn't just kind of made up in your head. It was real because, again, when people came out of COVID, what was it they, they missed? They missed being with people they loved and they missed connecting with country. They missed being outside because all of that is real. The capitalist system is something that's made up. And, I mean, I've got super stashed away and you think, gee, I'm getting old, I need to tap into that. And in the last two months, it's just gone kaput. 
because <laughs> it's not real in a way, you know. And I guess that's the, the thing, you know, to, to even consider, like if you considered it now, let's just say, for example, modern Australia was, was colonised, right, uh, by a technologically, you know, militaristically all-powerful, dominating, ruthless, you know, you know, force that you know, a, a cough would kill a community, right, which is what happened here in this country. And that, that those colonisers came in with a... All you guys want stuff. No more. No more stuff. It's just looking after each other. Like to have these values imposed upon this, the momentum of 60,000 years of culture, suddenly it's like all that doesn't matter. You only matter if you own this thing. That's got to be devastating. And, and like you can, you can only therefore get the benefits of these colonizers, the, the health, the water, the, the, now the money that we are demanding you use because no, food's no longer free. Food used to be free. Now you have to pay for yep. food. You know, it would be devastating if that happened to our modern culture. Yeah, I mean, Uncle Paul, who, who's got the beautiful words in, in the book that, that it's wonderful that you found so, so engaging to read. He's an amazing man and there's a lot of stuff beyond the words in the book that he's shared with me. And when he was young, in his 20s, he spent some time up in a community on the on the border of Northern Territory and Western Australia. So you can imagine it would have been desert where all the explorers oh, yeah. died and where we would die. But he lived there. I won't give the name, but he lived there and he said, think about it, those people have lived there since the beginning, and, and, and science says anywhere between 60 and 200,000 years, but let's just say in our way the beginning. Now, they could have all packed up and marched three weeks west and been on the Broome coastline and been eating lobsters and, and all sorts of yummy things, which we'd go, yeah, that's the go. So the question is, why did they stay there? And the answer is because they loved where they were because they knew the country so well that gave them all they needed. But what happened in that community in the 80s was government came in and said, you can't go wandering around like savages, we need to educate your children. Now, the reason our people walked country was so they didn't decimate any one place, because things need to be supported in a cycle that they can live. But they got told, no, you must sit in one place, and they were forced to live in one place, and so they quickly ate out all the food, and there was no, no wood for fires. So the government said, oh my goodness me, we built you a school, but you got no food, we better build you a shop. And they filled it full of chips and coke. Yeah. And then the people said, well, we, how do we get things from the shop? Oh, we better give you money. Oh, we better put in a road so from Alice Springs so that we can get trucks in all weather to fill the shop so that you can use your money to buy the food that's unhealthy for you. Then after a period of time, the Prime Minister came in not that long ago and said, hey, you outposts are too expensive and, and you're all sick. You're all dying at 40. You used to live to 100, but now you're no good. You're a problem. But where did the problem come from? The problem came from people coming in thinking they knew our story and they knew better rather than listening. And that's what you just explained, Osher. When you have things forced upon you, it can even be done in love and good intent. But if you don't know the story of who you're trying to help, then you, you might get it wrong. You might get it right, but you might get it wrong. And so our way of living suited our needs because we knew our country and we didn't overpopulate. And and it doesn't take too much research to understand that these practices of, of feeding yourself and, and storing food for the future 
have been going for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. And the idea of, yeah, we'll spend three weeks here in the desert knowing that we're a couple of, you know, you know, 10 sleeps, 20 sleeps walk away from abundant fish and craze and stuff. But we're spending this time here because we know that when we come back for the next season, there'll be food here again. And if we leave too Correct. early, if we leave too early, it won't, it won't be right. Because we've got a, you know, and, right. and the, the farming practices didn't look like European farming practices. You know, we, we're clearing this land here with fire and such to encourage right. this kind of particular plant to grow so that when we do come back, there's more of it. I mean, if anybody's read um, Explorer, Mitchell, he just walked north of Melbourne. Uh, Mitchell stayed alive by raiding grain stores, grain stores that have been sitting there, you know, because people are like, right, we're going to have a corroboree here next time the moon's in this spot. Uh, we're going to just keep putting food here so that when there's 300 people here, we'll have enough food. Beauty. Anyway, all I did was follow the yeah. walking tracks and went, shit, look at all this food. <laughs> it's not like these guys were like legends of the land. They just ate the food that they found stacked up. And I'm, you know, it's... it's yeah, well, culture's kind of common sense. I mean, when people hear Paul speak or me speak or when they read my book or our book, they kind of say, but this is... Simple. Well, sometimes the profound is in the simple and sometimes the wisdom is in the common sense. There's a difference between knowledge and wisdom. Anyone can be given knowledge, but then to transfer that into something useful is what wisdom is about. And and if it's too complex, then you're not going to remember it. And so what I learned from going bush was there are these things that are powerful and beautiful, but they're, they're also things I can remember, things like I need to be, I need to embrace love, respect and humility and always share. That you go, well, that can't be that big a change in my life. But if you do those four things, you'll find that life becomes pretty easy. It becomes one of gratitude because you're respecting what you've been given rather than than, than jealousy and, and what when you're going, oh, I'm missing all these things, and you get caught up in the when-then syndrome. So it is about being grounded, but a lot of our stuff is old. It's being recycled, like mindfulness has been around since the day dot for us because when we walk country, we're mindful. So a lot of the ancient wisdom is being re rediscovered and kind of branded as something that can be sold as a, as a product when, in yeah. fact, it's always been there if people are able to spend the time with local elders. Yeah, I remember experiencing it when I was about 13, but then I, the first time I really noticed it, Paul, was I was at work and we were shooting two and a half hours out of Alice Springs. This is in 2000. We were two and a half hours northwest of Alice Springs. And I stood in a spot with my with my back to the dirt road uh, on the way to this community we were visiting. And to the horizon in every direction, besides the dirt road and the car behind me, I could see not one man-made structure in every direction. And Paul, I was overcome with this. I was standing next to someone to work with and I whispered to him, he was standing right there, but I whispered because I felt so small and so tiny yeah. and so insignificant. And that was a profound moment for me. It's like, oh, that's right. I am but a bunch of atoms on this giant spinning ball and I'm just a part of all this. When you first went bush, obviously you were, as you mentioned earlier, you were uh, dealing with suicidal ideation, which I have been through and it's very, very difficult. And I've had those thoughts and to be delivered from them is a, is a true gift. When you yep. went, I understand wanting to find any way out. 
and and you know like I'll I'll try yes. anything. I'll I'll get in a car and I'll drive. How far do you want me to go? I'll go if it means I don't have to deal with this forty times a day because it's overwhelming. 100%. When yeah. you went out, when you stood out there, who did, who did you go with, and what what was transformational about that moment? Well, it, it wasn't Uncle Paul. I didn't meet him until a year down the track. It, it was one of the the people that had spent time with him, and and they just embrace the the Aboriginal value of always share. So they they were looking out for people that it's not a recruitment campaign. They just noticed me and thought this this bloke would probably be willing to listen and learn. And so I went out with a, an older man and he took me to a side and I didn't know what to expect. And we went to a site and he showed me the site and what was important wasn't the site itself, it's the story. And when I heard the story it wasn't so much the cognitive process of evaluating what was said to me, even though that was part of it. It was a bit like you when you stood with the acre on. It was a feeling that came over me where I got goosebumps and I just felt right. I felt right and I went, wow, this is amazing. It was like I'd spent my life trying to plug into something but but having it half plugged in, but not really getting the electrical current that I needed. So I felt the spiritual current came through me. And it wasn't that I suddenly become euphoric and dancing and I was cured, but it was a moment where I felt contentment and I hadn't felt that for a long time. And also I felt something really deep inside that was strong. And then the more I went, it just kept on building slowly. So it wasn't something that it was incremental, but I knew it was right. And in many ways, I've realised that this journey isn't about getting rushing to a destination. It's about enjoying the journey and taking a step without looking too far ahead and appreciating whatever it is that you're given at the moment in time. And that's now over two decades ago. And I still continue to learn and I still continue to be amazed, but I still practice everything that I've been given. And every day I've got a gratitude diary and I write down the things that every day that I have gratitude for because I don't want to slip into those old habits because I'm sure you're aware. It's important to be disciplined because the old habits are just around the corner if, if you don't keep an eye on things. Mate, anyone anyone who's had a habit of running 5Ks a day and then goes on holiday for two weeks, that first run back, it is shit. You, your body will, your body will detrain quickly, and the same thing goes for your brain. If you don't keep this stuff up, it goes away. I appreciate, and I, I just want to, you know, just point something out. Uh, and I know this from spending time with Joe. Um, hey, what are those scars, Joe? I can't tell you, mate. Just know that. Okay, all right. He's got this kind of. He's got ritual scarification on his body. Um, you know, you mentioned you you didn't say that the person you went with, you didn't say the place you went with, you didn't describe the story that was told to you. There's an element of uh, I don't want to say secrecy, but sanctity around that knowledge, and it's 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 to be shared only to the right people in the right environment. It's not to say that uh, I'm allowed to know this and you're not. It's it's more to say there's a value to hearing it only when you're ready and in the right place to hear it. But you did mention something that I, th I think is profoundly important when it comes to, um, I guess, Western views of the world and Aboriginal views of, of the world. And this is something that I also learned on that trip uh, in 2000, is the Aboriginal culture's perception of time and place and how that changes um, uh, I guess spiritual practice and and, and meaning. 
Yeah, for us, and it's in my PhD, it's in my PhD, I researched it because you've got to, it's funny, you write a PhD about Aboriginal culture and you've got to find written literature by non-Aboriginal people to validate what you've been told. <laughs> and so the, I need, I need yeah, to find problem. something to validate. Yeah, yeah it's, well, the last part of my PhD, I actually talk about cultural unsafety and, and dominant culture academic practice and how it's quite inappropriate. But I did find a comment that I could reference from a, from a psychiatrist about how they observed, and now, now it's a psychiatrist, obviously it's real, whereas when our people say it, it's like, what? So they actually confirmed what we always know, and that is for Aboriginal people, time is nonlinear. There's no such thing as past, present and future in the way we see things. It's cyclical, and it goes in and out, and that's a problem for me because I just... Part of my PhD, I wrote a novel and, and the literary purists were getting really cranky with me because they said, you haven't anchored the setting in time. And I thought about that and I went, yeah, I haven't because when I tell dreamtime stories, all we say is in the beginning and then we just into it. We don't actually say in two days later, in came the Goanna and three days later in came a clever man because we don't think about time that way because time for us is about being in the moment. And it, it, it moves backwards and forwards. And I've actually experienced it. And we've all experienced it. I mean, Einstein calls it relativity. It's all relative. I mean, the only way time becomes linear is when you get a calendar and you sit down with a clock and you start measuring it. But otherwise, you and I have been in meetings, no doubt, Osher, where time seems like every minute is an hour. And we've been <laughs> other places where time just goes by and you go, wow, I can't believe two hours has gone. And then in our mind, we go backwards and forwards, we hear music, we relive memories, and that just gets extended when we go out to sites. Time moves. It goes in all sorts of places. And I've, I've been somewhere near where you had an amazing experience up in Northern Territory. I, I was at a conference up there around about the same time, actually, and about 2000 and when the conference finished i just hired a car and i just took off and, and drove for a couple of hours northwest and i stood in this place similar to you where i just looked everywhere and couldn't see anything but because i'd been going bush it was one of the most amazingly beautiful experiences i've ever had because i felt the word i used when i came back home and told my wife i said i felt the ancientness i don't feel that on the coast that much because it's so consumed and polluted by busyness and, and noise. But out there I felt the ancient and I felt timelessness and I felt privileged that I was part of that. And yes, I was a speck, but I was, I am. I'm part of it. I mean, looking at the statistics, it taps into what our old people say. If you toss a coin, the chances are one in two that you'll get a heads or tails. The chances of winning lotto is 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 one in two with eight zeros after it. But the chance of being born is one in six with a hundred zeros after it. Just imagine a one in six with a hundred zero. That's the chance of being born, and yet we are. So the probability of being born is almost impossible, and yet we are. And that's why our old people say we're, we're born in love and we're born for a reason. And so they also say when we leave this world behind, all we leave behind is our story, so make it the best story possible. And that's the challenge. What is our story? What is the best story possible? Up until I was 35, my story was about keeping everybody happy. After that, I decided, no, I'm going to walk my footsteps and not worry about the destination and time, just walk my footsteps. And listening to you, Osher, that's 
why your story is so inspirational. You've you've gone, okay, I'm going to be me now. And that's the challenge. Can we look back and say I'm living that good story? And tapping back into your question about time, one of the problems is time is the boss. It dictates. We wake up and we look at the time. We get a red light. We get cranky and say, look at the time. We get home from work and say, my goodness me, it's dinner time. Look at the time. And then we force ourselves to go to bed because we go, look at the time. And so time is almost an impediment to contentment and yet it's something important that we need to understand but again it's like anything money's not bad it's the way we manage it time is not bad it's the way we manage it understanding business practice isn't bad it's the way we manage it so all these things so all all the old values that's why i found them so incredibly useful in contemporary life because they're timeless there's a lot of time in there hey yeah well i I guess it was something that I, i i truly understood we um I guess part of the story, and I won't. I, you know, I'll be respectful to. There, there was a the the guy that that was taking us around. He was from that community, and it, it was a bloke walking on the side of the road. And he goes, "Oh, there's my dad, uncle." And I was like, "You what now?" He goes, "My dad, uncle, pull over." And I, I said, "Hey, dad, uncle," and dad, uncle jumped in the back of the car, and we gave dad, uncle a ride. And dad, uncle spoke uh, in his uh, version of English which um, the person I was with uh, helped me understand. And dad uncle said, stop the car, stop the car. And he, he pointed out this thing on the, on the hill and he told me this just, it was just a bunch of rocks. And then within about uh, less than a minute, it was now um, two dingoes who had, you know, it was like a mother dingo and a child dingo and the good child dingo. And down over there was the bad child dingo who hadn't listened to his mother. And now the bad child dingo was in trouble. And he said, you know, always remember that. And then he said, okay, keep going. I've got to go see my friend. And, you know, as far as he was concerned, that dingo was there. That, mo- that mother dingo, I could hear it in his voice. That mother dingo and the child, the good child dingo were there. The lesson was there. It was in the hilltop and it looked down upon everybody every day and it always has. And in that moment, it was like, oh, as you mentioned, you know, the, the idea of like, oh, there was no once upon a time or way back when and now to this day we remember it's like no it is yeah as far as he's concerned it is a mother dingo and her you know the well-behaved child it is a lesson about community and family and being respectful and honoring and the things you were speaking about earlier and it is right now but and it always has been right now for sixty thousand years so I understand then when a mining company comes along and goes, we'll just dynamite that. Um, it's like, well, hang on. It's not that it stopped mattering. That's right. <laughs> because it was time ago. It's, it, it matters as much as it does now as it did 20, 40, 50, 60,000 yeah. years ago. And you wouldn't do that to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. You right. wouldn't do that to the Dome of the Rock. You wouldn't blow up the Western Wall. What are you fucking doing? Yeah. And it really helped me kind of get my head around uh, the concept of time, and also that he called him dad, uncle. And when he got out of the car, I said, why do you call him dad, uncle? And he said, well, that's the closest English word I can give him. Yeah. Because I was like, is he your father? He goes, no, he's not the man that, you know, yeah. m- you know, married my mum, that he has the same, uh, I guess, standing in my life as my yeah. dad. And the idea yeah. to me then of like, wow, to be not accountable, not just to your own dad, but to be accountable to all men and women of that, cohort because the other person in his life was called mum granny yeah and i was like wow you'd really want to be on point because everyone is going to keep you aligned (laughs) that that relates that relates there's a couple of things there that relates to in aboriginal culture 
a big word is relationships, but another big one is our responsibilities. So once we go through law and are initiated, we have a responsibility to care for country and all things on country. But we have responsibility to care for each other. So that young person was talking to their dad uncle, but that dad uncle's got a responsibility to care for that person too. So it creates a mutually beneficial commitment where we're there for each other and, and that's really quite beautiful. Just tapping into your comment about time, something that people feel uncomfortable about when they sit with an Aboriginal person at times is because we don't have a concept of time in a way, even now behaviourally, we're really happy to sit there and, and be quiet and take in the stillness. And it enables us to also listen but also think and also just be. And yet quite often when you get non-Aboriginal people sitting around, they'll go, oh, I'm not really comfortable with this quiet, so I'd better, I'd better talk and, and make some noise. And our old people just kind of go, why are they, why do they feel the need to fill the void with noise all the time? Why can't we just enjoy this little bit of stillness? There'll be plenty of time to talk. And that taps into this whole time thing, you know, the pressure, I've not much time, I better fit this in. Without a shadow of a doubt. I guess one of the, upon reading your book, and I am, you know, I am very aware of not wanting to culturally appropriate you know i don't want to i don't want to turn up to coachella in a you know a native american indian headdress you know i don't want to you know i don't i don't want to be that white guy you know how can a non-first nations australian incorporate some of the practices in that you talk about in the dreaming path and yet stay on a respectful side of not being culturally appropriating yeah there's a couple of things Relating to that, so a lot of people go, oh, but we're not Aboriginal, why are you sharing this? And you kind of said it very humbly at the start about this gift and you're not sure whether you're worthy of it. Well, Yeah, I'm reading the book, I was like, mate, you're after everything that's happened, you, you, you still want to share this? You know, yeah. I felt like it wasn't deserved, dude. Well, it, there's an altruistic reason of we should always share. The old people say knowledge, if not shared, has no power. So we should share. But also from a spiritual perspective, this knowledge comes from the land and we're the custodians. That's what I've been taught. And so we have a responsibility. I talked about the importance of responsibility. We have a responsibility to share this knowledge with everybody that lives on this land. The reason being we want them to love the land like we do. I'm not saying they have to believe our spirituality, but we want them to understand where we're coming from so at least there's some respect for that. And hopefully some some desire to care for the land in whatever way that means to that person. So we're quite happy to share and the idea is we want to sit around the fire together. When I first started writing this book, it was about giving some insights in, in terms of Aboriginal philosophy to help people with contentment. But by the time I finished it and thought about it, it's also really important as a vehicle for, for, for mutual understanding and reconciliation where we can truly sit down where people feel comfortable. And yet when I call you my brother, you go, oh, you really feel that? And I go, yeah, you're my brother. And you'll go, yeah, I'm not bloodline, don't matter. Since the Macassans came down in the 1500s, they've been made part of family. And so it's about showing respect, which you have in, in, in spades, and it's about sitting down with local elders in local regions and and if invited, and, and making those connections and and showing that respect. What we don't need is everybody suddenly going out and spouting wisdom, pretending that they're the custodians of the knowledge. At the same time, we'd certainly, I can only speak for myself and Uncle Paul, by the way, but 
we'd love to see people saying that they read this book and it made a difference and encouraging other people to read it and, and understand. And so the first layer is understanding where we're coming from and then using that. So the way the old people explain this kind of connected to what you're saying, and this happens with us as Aboriginal people, two Aboriginal people, an old fellow might grab me and say, look, I'm going to tell you a story. And they'll tell me a story and they'll say, now that's for you. I want you to sit with that story and hold on to that story and I want you to think about that story and I want you to reflect on that story. And then at a point in time, if I see that old fellow again, he might say, okay, now you can share that. Because what he wants is for me to sit down and synthesise what I've been given so that I learn and grow rather than just rush off and pass the buck so I can be seen. And so they want us to be humble about what we've learned, but also at some point they'll say, yeah, you can share this. So with all these learnings, I guess the first step for me in terms of the book is we're hoping that, that people will read it and use it within themselves. And then when time feels right, when they think they've kind of got got some of the understandings and used them a bit, and then they'd be okay, we'd be okay for people to share that. What we don't want is people suddenly standing on the corner preaching saying, Chapter 4, I'm the, I'm the knowledge owner, you need to listen to me. What we'd sooner have is people reflect and use it and then share that in a humble way with others where appropriate. And certainly Chapter 8 about leadership, that's something I think me and Uncle Paul are pretty keen for people to think about pretty quickly because across the world we're seeing the, the, the sadness in Ukraine where there's just totally uh, a, a total opposition to what we would think is good leadership and, and the law. The law's been broken because leadership in our way is caring for our place and all things in our place, for our children's 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 children. And we have governments that are elected and all they're focused on is their three-year cycles of popularity and they're not necessarily looking and they don't really know what they're doing. So we need people to have responsibility. So I've given you a convoluted answer, but we want people to read and reflect and understand yeah. And then start to share how they're feeling mm. about that. And when appropriate, and, and each of us is different, people, someone like yourself would pick this up pretty quickly, but share it. But now old people, what we're also big on is if I'm given a dance and given permission to share that dance, acknowledge where that comes from. So the things that we've put in the book, it's there to be shared, but it's there to be shared in a humble way, not an egotistical way. But it's, it's something that is to be shared mm. once the person has listened and believes that they're, they're comfortable with what's in there. I guess the, w what really struck me, and this was in, in, in spending time with Joe Williams, you know, if if you get, and I know this because I know someone who, who if you ever get admitted to a, a psych ward, and it happens if you have really poor mental health, getting admitted to a psych ward is something that, that can be in your part of life. And I, I recommend it because it, you know, I haven't been through it, but it'll get you, it'll save your life. But the first thing they do is they get your sleep right. Then they get you eating right. Then they get you moving right. Um, they make sure your meds are right, but then they also get you talking right and thinking right. And because these things can all get so out of balance and get you down these spirals and you only you don't need much time, maybe 30 days, and then you're kind of back on track. But what I found really interesting with, with Joe and describing the spiritual practice is the day-to-day melding of spiritual practice kind of molded into this is also how we feed and clothe and look after and care for ourselves and our country, there is movement in there. There is connection with each other in there. Yeah. There is sleep in there. There is routine in there. These, these practices that 
in, almost ensure a good mental health space are baked in to the day-to-day life of cultural practice. And yeah. I found that absolutely fascinating. Yeah. I mean, traditionally, our old people walk 20Ks a day and it wasn't walkabout. It was it was connecting to I've got stuff to do, man. I've got, kids are hungry. <laughs> um, well, actually, our people only did what, what you would call work to live on the coast in my country or in my country for about half an hour a day and inland and at about two hours. So the rest of the time was sleeping and sitting down and sharing or educating. And educating was quite complex and it was done by walking country. And that story you were told about the rocks and the dingoes, that would happen almost daily where you'd be taking young ones, but also showing them technical skills, how to make a spear, how to hunt, all those things. So the learning process, everything that you've just said, it's all interrelated. So learning wasn't a separate thing where you go and sit in a, in a box and get told this is the curriculum today. And, and I did some mapping of that because I have an education background and I found that all the, the best practice in, in pedagogy and education these days was around for 60,000 years because it's all interrelated. And, yes, mind, body and spirit, they're all interwoven. And the old people say, and I, and I when I'm talking to people, they'll say, oh, I'm going so good, brother. I'm, I'm doing the gym four days a week and I've cut out of my food and I'm meditating. And so quite often when people decide they do the New Year's thing and I'm going to get my shit together, they'll do that. But then I'll say, so what are you doing for your spirit? And they'll look at me aghast and agape and go, what do you mean? And I'll say, whatever you believe in, whether it's something in terms of a deity or a practice or whether it might be something, just something bigger than you, it might be your family. What do you do to nurture that? And they'll go, well, don't do anything. And I said, well, in our way, you're not going to be well. It might be just sitting on the beach every now and then or or it might be going out in the backyard and noticing what's flowering or rubbing your feet in the grass. But there's something there in our way that needs to be done. So it's about integrating mind, body and spirit and, and that taps into the Aboriginal definition of well-being, which is our well-being is based on mind, body and spirit but also of all of us. So if one of us is not well, none of us are well because no one can be left behind. So in the traditional world, we all need to be well. In this world now, we need Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal people to be well. Now, we know from the socioeconomic data, Aboriginal people are impoverished in all sorts of data sets. But in our way, we also look at the non-Aboriginal world in Australia and say, you know, there are people with drug and alcohol problems, there are people chasing the clock, there are people chasing money, not everyone, but a lot of people for the wrong reasons and they're not living good stories, so they're not well, so we need to help them too. We need to help each other. And when we help each other, then we all find this wellness, but also we need to make sure the land is well. And so that's big responsibility and it's complex in a, in a Western world where we have all these wonderful things like hot water. But they're discussions we need to have because global warming is real and we need to get serious about it. Yeah. But we can have conversations without reverting to labels or stereotypes or say, all you blackfellas should go back to the Stone Age. Well, no, we can't go back to the Stone Age and we were never in the Stone Age. But what we can do is harness the wisdom of the Aboriginal world, but also there's a lot of good stuff in the Western world and there's a lot of good stuff in other areas that we can bring together and go, okay, what does this all mean and how can we improve our lives and those around us? Yeah, it's like, it's like it, it would be like saying, okay, yeah, you wouldn't say to someone who's in manufacturing, okay, mate, well, then you can no longer use the Kanban system, which was developed in Japan. You can no longer use that 
uh, as part of your manufacturing process that the Toyota company made, you know, in the in the 20s. Uh, no, you, people take cultural practices from all over the world and incorporate them to make their lives their lives better. You, there is something in the book that you you do talk about, and it, it almost kind of encapsulates a little bit of the day to day stuff that we talked about, um, as far as daily activities and to remember. Have you know? Have you done these things every day? And I, I love an acronym. Uh, it helps you remember oh, stuff. Yeah. Helps you remember stuff. Uh, yeah, it does. I, I, you know, in the in the previously mentioned, you know, sobriety team that I may or may not be a part of, uh, they always talk about halt. Don't let don't let yourself get too hungry, angry, lonely, or tired. Oh, and right. If you can keep yourself uh, out of those four spaces, you generally. Don't tend to not make dumb decisions or say stupid stuff to people you love. It doesn't work all the time, but you generally try to keep on top of that. Uh, but you, in in the book, you talk about uh, you, you talk about the tense routine, as in T E N S E. Could could you talk us through that and where its origins are from and, and how we might be able to use it day to day? I I I use that every day. I even used it last night because I was that excited about having the yarn with you. I couldn't take this to leave. <laughs> so I'm at one in the morning doing the tense exercise to myself because of Osher. So I don't know where it came from really, Osher, other than that I've always been into mindfulness and, and, and I realised I'd, I'd done meditations and stuff and I knew the power of, of, of the senses, you know, our, our sensory input in terms of relaxation. And then I, I connected and I realised that when Aboriginal people do things, that's what we're doing. We're, we're connecting all the time. And so I thought, how can I, because you'll notice from reading the book, it's not, a, it's not just all Aboriginal philosophy, it's my lived experience and how I've brought together all the different things that I've used that have worked and, and found how that connects with Uncle Paul's words. And so with the tense exercise to explain it to people, it's all of our senses, but it's a really easy thing to remember, so it's an easy thing to do. So T stands for tongue. And, and I wanted just to make an acronym to start with, and I thought, how can I fit the senses into an acronym? So T is for tongue, E is for eyes, N is for nose, S is for skin, and E is for our ears. And again, I even say myself, I've tensed, now what's first taste? So I'll remember everything I've eaten and relive it. So again, this timelessness, and it makes me feel good. It gets the endorphins going and I start to relax and my head starts to slow down. But I find E for eyes, is, and you do it in this order, so I do it before I go to bed or if I can't get to sleep. Then I'll remember everything I've seen that day that's beautiful. And there, because I've trained myself to do it, I noticed in real time when things are beautiful, like the hibiscus are out at the moment and the frangipani's out and there are just amazing things everywhere. So I usually don't get past eyes. I, I re-see everything I've seen beautiful that day and by that time I'm in dreamland. But if not, I'll remember what I can smell from that day and then I'll remember what I felt and, and feeling's always beautiful, cuddles from someone you love, the breeze on your skin, all that kind of stuff. And I, I, I've only got to eat probably four or five times in the last three months where I think of all the beautiful things I've heard. What that does is it puts you into the now when you fall asleep or if you're getting ready for an interview or you're stressed about something, it grounds you in the now. But also, more importantly, in some ways, if you do it enough, you'll find every day as you're walking around, you'll go, gee, that tastes good. Or you'll go, gee, that looks beautiful. Or you'll go, oh, that smell. Oh, that's so good. Or you'll touch something and go, oh, wow. Or you'll hear a bird usually and you, or, or a child laughing. So it gives you these moments of pleasure, and that's the gratitude exercise and the 10 out of 10 exercise that's in the book. If we look around, there are literally hundreds of things every day that are wonderful. 
But what happens is our brain is wired into a deficit pattern, we'll notice the negative and the negatives are there. But there are lots more positives if we look out for them. But the problem is, and I've done lots of workshops on this, we tend to not look out for the positives, we just tend to harvest the negatives. We're going to be back with Dr. Paul Callahan in just a moment. I do have to play some ads here, though. There is an ad-free version of this show. You are welcome to go and explore it. There's an ad-free version of this show, and it's at patreon.com slash osher. If this show brings you value and you'd like to support the work we do here and help pay the wages of Rachel and Andy and Bree and Mike, then that would go a long way to, uh, to helping us out. There are various tiers on the Patreon. Um, there's ad-free. The video episodes are starting to come up now. I think we started with Nat's What I Reckon is when we started shooting them. And so from episode 420 on, the video episodes are coming up. It takes a little bit of time to edit them, but they're on the way up. So you get access to the video ads, uh, the video episodes as well. And there's there's some other tiers along the way. There's also a Facebook group if you're interested in connecting with other people listening to the show. But look, you know, if the very least you want to do is help out, then the very best you can do is is share this podcast. You know, just click that little arrow in the corner of whatever podcast app you've got and text it to somebody. And that'd be really, really, really helpful. Huge help for us because, you know, people subscribe and unsubscribe all the time. So it'd be really, really great if you could help, help us out there. We're back with Dr. Paul Callahan in just a sec. But yeah. Enjoy either these commercials or some wonderful interlude music. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I can't tell you how grateful I am to spend time with you. And I know we generally, we just kind of spoke about the focus of the book, but the history of Uncle Paul that you've been referring to and how he came to reignite this flame is astonishing. And the amount, if you could just, could you even estimate the amount of people that uh, he initially has taught and had and have then taught others? It, it would be in the thousands, surely. Yeah, he's been doing this for probably 30 years and he's he's connecting with probably at various levels, probably 500 people a year, so that'd yeah. be 15,000. I mean, he, he's such he's such a humble man. I was, I was telling him one day, I said, oh, yeah, I love the Dalai Lama. He said, yeah, I took him bush once. And I went, what? He said, yeah, he, he knows a bit, but he said all the other Dalai Lamas know a lot more spiritually. I said, what do you mean? He said, oh, there's more than one, you know. And you, he says it so calmly, you think, no, he's making that up, and then you'll see something and you'll go, oh, he, he was telling the truth. And so he said all these other Dalai Lamas 
picked up all the spirits and it was really amazing. And I said, so you think, oh, no, I've got some details, I couldn't be bothered. So he's got people all over the world that he's changed their lives. And now we've got a book that's also coming out in France and Germany, this book. And I said, where are your contacts in Germany? Oh, I don't know. So, so he's, he's literally changed people's lives all over the world, including mine, and we're both similar age now. So what we've realised is if you, looked, if you looked at the, where we need to go in terms of reconciliation and unity and well-being across this land, let alone the world, you'd kind of get a bit down because of the scale because this, this is a long journey. But what we are both intent on doing is we want to plant a garden. We want to put seeds where we know those coming behind will, will start to germinate and, and share this learning. And in the longer term, we will see a place that, that's unified. So, so Paul is a, a phenomenal man and a, a very humble person. And he's kind of created his own problem because he doesn't ask for it, but this can happen. I'm sure you've had it happen with you. If you're not careful, people put you on a pedestal. They iconise you and say, oh, yeah, this person, they've, they've got it all. And being humans, when we do something wrong, you can get criticised and, and suddenly the effigy is pulled down and people say, they're not what I thought. They're not the Messiah. No, they're naughty boys. <laughs> so what Paul invariably says is don't follow the man, follow the law. It's not the messenger that's important. It's the words they're saying. And I, I love that in the, the latest rendition of The Star is Born when the, the lead character is sitting in a bar with Lady Gaga talking about singing. And he says, he said, everyone in this in, everyone in this bar has talent. He said, that's not what it's about. You've got to have something to say. And so that, that taps into we need to be walking our story because if we're walking our footsteps, we'll have something to say that's beautiful and unique. We don't have to follow anybody else. And that goes back to my metaphor in the book that I'm sure that you, you saw visually in your head. And that is, I see too many people living in grey rather than in colour. And yet there's colour, there's colour all around us. So I remember Paul and I were sitting down in a little food court just down from Central Railway in Sydney quite a few years ago, about to give a presentation. And I just noticed everyone looking like their dog had died. Everyone, head down, shoulders slumped. <laughs> And I could feel the greyness around them, and I, I called them the greys. And most people were just living in grey. But, but we, I, I just told him, I said, oh, "Have you ever tried barn mai, barn me, barn mai, Vietnamese pork rolls?" He said, "No." And I said, "Well, there's one just over there. I'm going to get us a couple." And we sat there, and we were in this state of euphoria for 15 minutes, where we were just like shooting up rainbows of joy in this field of grey. And and that's the thing. There's this colour all around us. And I mean, we can we even have a gift with our eyesight that we can see colour, but we don't embrace it, and and so that's the challenge, and that's the thing that Paul has brought into the world, and is sharing. It's an ability for us to tap into old wisdom, but by doing so, tap into our own wisdom because we're all ancient in our own way, and and the tr and the, the knowledge is in there. If we if we tap into it, there's this you call it your intuitive self or your wise self. It's in there, but we need to find it. You know. As a country, we have so much blue sky above us. We are nowhere near the top of the mountain. We, are, we fell backwards down the stairs and we landed on our feet somehow. And yet when I see what more we can do, the thing, Paul, the thing that's really, I, I truly believe this, the thing that's holding us back is the, in the same way that 
you know, and you know, you mentioned banh mi. I've eaten a banh mi in the old days. Banh mi's are amazing. Vietnamese really know what they're doing when it comes to food. Um, in the same way that if you haven't got a, an acceptance with, and and I live with omnivores, Paul, like my wife, my kids, everybody yep, eats, yep. everyone eats meat in my house, and what people put in their mouth is their business. But yep. my wife's Fijian, all right. She knows what it is to raise the pig. She knows what it is to slaughter the pig. She knows, she understands this is what's happening, all right? You know, but people who haven't faced that, there's this kind of internalized shame when they're eating meat. You know, they're like, ah, oh, I know, yeah. you know something died and I'm, I'm uncomfortable that something's died, but I'm eating this anyway. Similarly, and I don't mean to be trite, I'm just trying to find a way that can parallel that. I think all of us kind of know that something really horrible happened and is still happening to allow us to live in the country we live in. And until we face that shame, until we work through that shame as as people who are com implicit and complicit um, in the in the in the you know the, this destruction of culture and col and you know and community until we go yes it is happening it has happened we are all benefiting from it how can we now together move forward yeah mate paul if we can unlock that as a country i think we will be unstoppable man like yeah. I, and i truly believe that i truly believe that yeah i mean you look at no one likes to see people going through hardship and my heart goes out to people affected by floods up the north coast and in sydney and i talk about in the book what happens when storms come into our life and, and there is a time when storms come and, and we need to kind of accept the grief and loss but not allow us to pin for that to pin us down forever and at some point start going through it. And we have sorry business that, that teaches us that. But when there is that hardship, it's I was saying I say it quite often, the same as COVID around the world, in times of hardship, you see the beauty of humanity. You see people rising. You saw people going out in boats and saving people up at Lismore. In the fires down south, you saw these amazing human beings giving. And a comment I make at times is, why is it that the beauty of humans is ignited through crisis? Why can't we ignite that in everyday life? Because there are a lot of amazing people in this country, very giving people. Wonderful people. I mean, the fact that we got the referendum up back in the 60s, a lot of non-Aboriginal people voted to support our rights to be in the Constitution. And so how do we ignite that? And it's about, it's about, it's about creating a platform of understanding where people don't feel guilty, where people don't feel yelled at, and we can sit down and talk. I've had a few people criticise me about this book saying, oh, what about, the, what about the genocide and what about the invasion? You need to be talking about that. And I do that with my consultancy work and I've certainly done that in my PhD and I've just written a couple of novels that, that encapsulate that. But with this book, I wanted to, to provide something that's strength-based that doesn't shy away from that truth-telling. There's a chapter there about truth-telling. But I'm trying to give people something to engage and feel good about so that we can come together and feel comfortable and safe in these conversations. And certainly we do need to be able to sit down and reflect and be and be honest. I, I was in Germany a few years ago with my youngest son in Berlin and I was amazed about the honesty and, and the authenticity of the museums, the open air museums and others about what happened. Yeah. And I thought, wow, if only we could do something like that in Australia because Reading it all, they do it in a way where you make up your own mind. There's no finger pointing. There's no yelling. 
it's just sharing here is here is what happened and so that's certainly an important part it's like going for me this country is in adolescence and it's time for it to start looking at itself so it can reach adulthood and when it reaches adulthood that's when there'll be truth telling and, and there are lots of sad sad stories that that i talk about when i deliver workshops and things so i don't hide it at the same time i want people to feel like they can sit in something beautiful and that's something beautiful is this country and the culture that's within its lands i am i have been and i remain so moved by um like my connection to you is through Joe Williams and my friendship with Joe has um, been of enormous and incredible value to me and my wife, Audrey, and the continual exposure to the knowledge that he is so generously sharing with me and my family. And then the introduction to yourself and the generosity of this book. Um, it's a true, true gift, mate. It's a true gift. And I, I certainly hope that enough people read it, at least people who have an aspiration to any form of leadership in this country, and just to gain an understanding, you know, just to gain an understanding because we don't need a, a, a demountable shop filled with potato chips and Coca-Cola. That's no. not it. That is not it, <laughs> you know. <not>. And <laughs> that, yeah, man, just thank you. Thank you for dedicating your life to this. And I'm grateful we have leaders like yourself and Uncle Paul in the world, man. And I, 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 can't, I, I can't wait to speak to you again. And, and, and I, I really hope that if there's any way that I can help you, mate, you, you reach out because I would, I would love to be a part of helping amplify what it is you're doing. Wonderful. Wonderful. Thank you for just being you, mate. It's, it's wonderful <laughs> to have people like you in the world to join hands with us. <laughs> mate, I'm, I'm just, just trying to... I don't know what I'm trying to do. Just trying to make it feel less not right. <laughs> Does that make sense? Yeah, and, and that's a good place to be. Let's <laughs> let's, let's dance together in comfort, not in shame. Yeah. And and, I, and I'll leave I'll leave with a story about that. With dance, putting the ochre on is is part of getting ready for dance. And dance isn't like let's go down to the disco. Dance is our sharing of story in a physical way. And on my fortieth birthday, it was the first time I was to do a public dance and. Uncle Paul came up to me and he said, how you going? How you going, mate? And I said, I am shit scared. And he said, really? He laughed at me and I said, yeah, I'm almost vomiting. And he said, why? And I said, look at the people. There's a 1,000 people out there, they reckon. He said, what are you nervous about? He said, I said, 2,000 eyes. And he said, I don't know about you. He said, I don't know why I waste my time trying to teach you stuff. And I got all sad. And I went, why? And he said, look up in the trees. What can you see? And I said, oh, there's, there's a big wind up there. That's the old spirits coming in to watch us. And he said, you know that, eh? I said, yeah. He said, when you dance, you dance for them. He said, you connect with them and you'll move exactly the way you need to. you move exactly the way you need to. He said, you don't have to worry about the others. They can dance their way. It's not about being the best. It's about connecting and dancing for the right reasons. And I did. And that enabled me to let go of worrying about what other people think because I got that understanding through the power of dance, of connecting with something bigger than me. And that's what this is about. I, I didn't dance with embarrassment anymore. I danced with love. And so that's, I love what you said, Osher. It's about us coming together and dancing together in a way where we're not shamed, where we're not worried about who does the best kangaroo because we're connected in story. And that's family. That's us. That's all of us 
into the future if we choose to. And everyone's welcome to that. Mate, every night when um, I put little Wolfie to sleep, I tell him a story about his day. And from now on, I'm going to include um, what he tasted, what he saw, what he smelled, what he felt, (laughs) and what he heard. And I'm going to bring that in. I'm going to get that. Into we get that sensory remembrance into his brain early on. Mate, you've been the best. Thanks so much for your time, buddy. Thanks, mate. Have a good one. That was Dr. Paul Callahan. The book is called The Dreaming Path. It's out wherever you get your books, and it is absolutely stunning. If you're at all interested in a spiritual insight into our First Nations people, it's just fascinating. It's a fascinating read. I took a lot from it, and I even try to incorporate some of it in my life, that the tense routine that um, Paul spoke about. I, I tend to do that with Wolfie at the end of the day when, when I'm putting him to bed. And it's really nice. It's a really nice thing to do. Once again, if you do want to support the show, if the show brings you value, patreon.com slash osher or just search Better Than Yesterday or Osher and Patreon. You can also um, find the Facebook group, uh, which is a way to connect with other people, listen to the show and have discussions about what you've heard. And, you know, if... You don't want to do those two things. Just share the episode. Tell someone. Let them know. Um, that's a huge, huge help for us. You can also find me on Instagram and send us your email at, at gmail.com. Look, I got a bit fired up by Q&A the other night. I'm not going to lie. So I might, as we head towards Sausage Day on the 21st of May, I'm I, I, sorry, I'm having an on-air production meeting again. Andy, I might do a few different things with Wednesdays and Fridays as we go forward. There may be, there's a couple of guests that I reckon that might not be a full episode, Andy, but, you know, Definitely, there's certain people that have been on the show before that I'd love to kind of get like 10 or 15 minutes with just to, I don't know, just kind of talk about what what to look for, how to handle, how to navigate whatever's coming at us over the election campaign and what to do with your vote. I guess, you know, if you haven't really thought about the election, number one, A, get on to aec.gov.au and make sure that your enrolment details are up to date. That includes you, Andy, who's listening to this right now, cutting this episode. Andy, I know you've just moved house, so get amongst that, dude. Uh, (laughs) You've got till, I think, the 18th of May. So don't fuck around, dude. Get on it. And so either enroll or, or make sure that your details are up to date. And... You know, the other thing you could do, and I found this really, really helpful, is is use the Vote Compass, which is a um, service of the ABC, the Australian Broadcasting uh, Corporation. Uh, Vote Compass has been around for probably about 10 years or more. And I remember the first time I used it, it's basically, it asks you a bunch of questions about how do you feel about this? How do you feel about refugees? How do you feel about coal? How do you feel about superannuation? How do you feel about franking credits? How do you feel about taxes? You know, and it asks you all these various questions. And then it spits out kind of where you are as far as where the other, you know, major policies of the major parties are and kind of pushes you and goes, well, if you're after this sort of thing, this is the kind of, these are the parties or this is the particular candidate in your area that gets closest to where you want to be. And when I first used it, I went into using it going, I'm probably going to come out like as a screaming greens voter, like as a freaking, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a, a set of dreadlocks and a bunch of patchouli oil away from being a, a gigantic lefty. But it spat me out pretty close to the centre little bit to the left, but pretty close to the centre. I was like, what the fuck happened there? But I realised, because I was comparing myself to the headlines of the newspapers at the time I was reading in Australia or seeing and the headlines on, on TV, and which is, is quite conservative and quite right, in Australia at least. It's very few centrist, if, or no, left, you know, news outlets, certainly newspapers and um, news TV. So here I am thinking, well, I don't think that, so therefore it must be the thing that they're talking about. I must be the other thing. I must be the lefty. But I wasn't. And that kind of blew my mind. And over the 
election since, it's really, that knowledge has helped me really consider which parties I vote for. And it's been interesting. So I'd, I'd really thoroughly encourage that. Certainly if you're a young person you've never voted before, it can really, really help you. Because, yeah, you want to put your voice behind the person who you think best represents how you feel about the world. And that's fine. Get amongst it. Thanks heaps for being a part of the show. Thanks for listening. Massive, massive thanks to uh, Andy Marr, uh, who edits every show, Toe Hider on the music, Bruce Steele on uh, research and production support, and, of course, Rachel Barrett, the great, powerful, amazing Rachel Barrett, who has a new friend who lives at her house. It looks like a gigantic blue tongue lizard, and I'm so stoked. Hang on, there was a name. I asked her what the name for it was. Hang on, she sent me a text. I'm going to see. What did you call your blue tongue lizard? It is Lizard Murphy. So there you go. To Rachel and to Lizard Murphy, thank you. Okay, I'll see you Wednesday. Thanks heaps for listening. Until we speak then, sleep well and dream of beautiful things. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. 